Mailbag. Nothing personal. Word of the day. It's mailbag. It's the end of February. 2021 is one-sixth over already. It's unbelievable. 2020 seemed to drag on. It seemed to pass in a second, and it seemed to pass in a decade. Then we were so excited to get to 2021, and here we are at the end of February. We promise you, me and Coco, we do it. The mailbag bonus episode, end of each month. How do you get on this show? You rate and review on Apple. Get into the Nothing Personal page on Apple Podcasts. Hit five stars. Write a review and ask a question in that review. And I'll try to get to it on a mailbag bonus episode. For those of you who don't have Apple, you can also contact me at Twitter, David P. Sampson. And if it's not, you have to follow me. And if it's not a question that is for the regular show, so you want to talk to Sampson, sometimes it's for the mailbag. Here we are. And I think we just got to start. We are starting a mailbag with a question about Andrew Benintendi, which is amazing because I wouldn't have guessed that. But I appreciate that two people actually asked several questions about this trade. Remember, he was on the Red Sox, got traded to the Royals. David, thank you for your time. You're welcome. It's what we do here. That was a side note, not in the question. As a Red Sox fan and seeing the news that fan favorite Andrew Benintendi got traded to the Royals, I was curious. How does a player initially feel and react when they get traded from a successful big market team to a smaller market such as Kansas City? Thank you. I love this question. Always frustrated me running the Marlins when the media would write, they're so cheap in Miami that no free agent would ever want to play there. Nobody wants to come play for the Marlins. No fans. Before we had a ballpark, it's rainy and wet and hot. After we had a ballpark, it's empty, but cool. Terrible hotels. Good city. No player wants it. Well, now let me tell you how it really works. Players do not care where they play. They want an opportunity to play when they're a young player. That's it. Because the golden currency in baseball is called service time. And getting to six years of service time is how you become a free agent. Getting to three years of service time is how you get arbitration eligible and start making more than the league minimum. The way you make more money in arbitration is by having bulk stats, lots of at-bats, lots of home runs, lots of runs batted in, lots of accomplishments on the field. The way to get that has nothing to do with how big your market is. There are special circumstances that come out in arbitration that the arbitrators can use to decide a case. We would argue them at the end of every case. This player's never been to the playoffs. This player has been on a team that's last in attendance every single year. And you know what? Arbitrators don't care one lick about it, but it's part of the rules in the collective bargaining agreement that the league can fight for smaller salaries in arbitration by using these circumstances as an indicator that the team doesn't have enough money or that the player hasn't done enough to move the needle so that the player's salary should be held down, as opposed to a team on the Red Sox or the Dodgers who walks into arbitration and says, second in attendance, multiple World Series. Yeah, arbitrators don't really care about that either. They care about your stats. I've never met a player who wasn't happy to come to the Marlins or be drafted by the Marlins, and the reason had nothing to do with Marlins Park or Pro Player Stadium or Landshark Stadium or Dolphin Stadium or Dolphin Stadium. The reason had to do with opportunity. 
And the Marlins were a team that gave opportunity to young players to go out there and play and get hundreds of at-bats. That's what players want. Players would come play in Florida as a free agent. All we had to do is overpay them and they'd come. Players love to be in Miami because it's Miami. We always thought, hey, it's closer to the Dominican Republic or to Venezuela or to Cuba. It's close to warm weather. It's nice during the winter. It's hot during the summer, but we've got air. Players will love it. Outdoor, their kids will love it. They can play baseball 13 months a year. No, none of that matters. So the way players react when they get traded, I've seen players cry. I've seen players laugh. I've seen players be angry. Majority of players are told by their agent the following. When you are traded, that means somebody wants you. Embrace that team and go with your eyes open and start performing. The best players are able to be traded knowing that it's a business, that trades happen. They happen for reasons that are beyond their control, not always about lack of performance, not always about greater performance than anticipated, leading to a greater salary than anticipated. None of that. Trades sometimes happen. And the key is when you are traded, it means there's one team that wants to get rid of you and one team that wants to get you. Focus on the team that wants you. Does it matter going from a big market team to a small market team? It does not matter when you are trying to get service time. It doesn't matter in terms of arbitration. None of that matters. Do players say, oh my God, I can't win a ring. I'm off the Red Sox. I'm going to the Royals. The Royals haven't won a World Series since 2015. Their payroll's so small. Oy vey. No, doesn't even occur to them. Literally. The reason why veterans like having no trade clauses to certain teams and the majority of players, by the way, here's a question that you didn't ask in this question, but how do players decide which teams to put in their no trade clause? They generally put the teams with the biggest payrolls in the no trade clause because those are the teams that would want to trade for a player who has a big contract. And the reason they want those teams on the no trade clause is not because they don't want to play for the team, but because when that other team wants them, they want to then go to their current team or the new team and say, give me a little extra money to waive my no trade clause to go to that team. That's the fact. So Andrew Benteni goes from the Red Sox to the Royals and he feels happy. He's going to play every day and his career will continue. Don't you worry. Thank you for that question. That one sort of made me smile. But then there was a backup question about Andrew Benintendi from someone totally different. The Royals got Andrew Benintendi in a trade and gave up a prospect and two players to be named later. How are the two players to be named later determined? I wanted to bring this up again because I thought we had covered PTBNL. A PTBNL is a player to be named later. I don't remember if we did it in a mailbag episode or in a So You Want to Talk to Samson, or whether I did on a different show, or whether Coca has no idea what I'm even thinking about or talking about. By the way, Coca is producing this episode. The days of Mikey doing the mailbags are over. Coca's working overtime. Do you know XTC, Coca? Sense is working overtime. Coca reminds me of that. Players to be named later are because you can't draft players within one year of them being drafted, or teams actually don't want a player to be named later. They want cash considerations because often you do a trade for player to be named later or cash considerations. And the cash considerations are often a dollar because you're just trying to get a roster spot. You're trying to clear a roster spot. You've designated a player for assignment, which means you've taken them off your roster. You have 10 days to release them or trade them. You call up a bunch of teams and you say, do you want the guy? 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 What's it going to cost? It'll cost a uh, 
Somebody, somebody who can fog up a mirror. That's it. Anybody with a pulse, we'll take them. Oh, you can't find someone like that? All right, just call it a player be named later to give us a dollar. Maybe $10. And we, we were good with the dollar. $100? Sold. We're going to trade them to you. We've got another person willing to do a player to be named later. And they're willing to do a grand. Are you going to do $1,100? That's sort of how these negotiations go with trades. Players to be named later only not named when they're not going to be a player or they're a player not eligible to be traded. Last year, you had a bunch of players to be named later in trades because there were so many minor leaguers who were not at minor league season because of the pandemic. There was only the big league squad and then the taxi squad. So anyone, any trade that took place last year involving any minor league player, it was always a player to be named later because there was no way to get that player's contract assigned to you. So Ben and Tendi, it's really the one prospect, the two players to be named later, they'll add up to not more than a can of beans if I had to guess. I appreciate that question. I think that's enough, Andrew Benintendi. I really do. Let's keep going right now. Hey, David. Hey, David. During your time with the Marlins, was there a team that you constantly looked for to make a deal because you knew they were poorly managed and you knew you could take advantage? Also, on the flip side, do you think there was a team that viewed your Marlins like that? Thanks. All right. The Yankees love trading with us because we had to give until it hurts because we had to make trades with the Yankees sometimes, and we had a chance to get good players. We thought we could get better, but generally in those trades, Brian Cashman would take advantage of us, and he loved doing trades with the Marlins. Yes, it's true. There were organizations that we didn't mind trading with, but I want to explain the concept of taking advantage of and what it means and why in baseball it's not a thing. Baseball trades are really hard because you're projecting young players where they're going to be. And scouts and player development people tell you that they know this guy's going to develop power. That guy's got a great swing. He's a gap hitter. This guy's going to win a batting title. This is a 20-game winner. This is a perennial all-star. This is an A player, a B player. We rank the players A, B, C, and D. You really don't want a D player. You want as many A's and B's as possible. There are very few A's in baseball. An A is an A, like the best player in baseball. Mookie Betts is an A. Tatis, by the way, is not an A, for those of you wondering. And it is very difficult to take advantage because different scouts, different analytic programs have different results on different players. The reason trades happen is I view that team's young player differently than that team views its own young player. I put a premium on the players I know. I put a discount on players I know because I know our system. We count on scouts and people to know other players in other systems. But the reality is you just don't know them as well because you haven't lived with them. You don't exactly know what an 18 or 19 or 20-year-old in low A or high A is going to be. Do you think the Toronto Blue Jays really wanted to trade Griffin Conine to the Marlins for Jonathan Villar? The Marlins would have traded Cone, would have traded Villar for anybody. Anybody. Literally a bag of balls. And the Blue Jays wanted him so badly last year, they gave up a great prospect in Griffin Conine, who is now a Marlin. The reality is that you could say, hey, it looks like the Marlins took advantage of the Jays. Maybe they should trade with them more. Maybe the Jays in Cleveland do a lot of deals because Mark Shapiro used to be in Cleveland and he knows Antonetti and Chernoff so well. Do you know in 18 years, there was never one example of an executive who said, hey, 
Let's do a deal with that team because I have a good relationship with that team. Let's do a deal with this team, but not that team. I don't like that guy. Why would we ever do a trade with San Diego? Neil Huntington, his nickname was Pump Fake with the Pirates, hard to deal with. Pump Fake means, hey, we got a trade. No, we don't. Hey, let's ready to go. Yes, sign it. No, oh, no. Letter of agreement. Nope. Pump Fake. Does that mean we don't want to deal with him? No, it means it's a pain in the neck, but it doesn't mean we're not going to deal with him. Imagine a world that you live in. There are a total of 29 stores you can go to and everything you need for your job, your house, your life. You had 29 total stores. That's it. Well, that's our universe in baseball. We can't afford to say, you know what? I will not do business with the Yankees if I'm the Mets. I won't do a crosstown deal if I'm the Dodgers. I won't deal with the Angels. I won't trade in my division because I don't want to get worse and make them better. No. You work with any front office, any GM, any team located anywhere and count on your people to help you make the best trade possible. It really comes down to that. Make the best deal possible. I appreciate that question. I liked it. All right, Carson Wentz, he was traded? Did we cover that on Nothing Personal, Coca? Carson Wentz apparently is a Baltimore cult. Wide receiver Michael Pittman said, I wear number 11. I'm not giving it to you, Carson. There's a loyal listener named Shane who said, hey, do you have any crazy Jersey stories? As a matter of fact, I do. And by the way, Michael Pittman saying he won't give up number 11 to Carson Wentz. Here's how Carson Wentz can get number 11, and here's how players get jerseys. So when a player is traded to your team or you sign that player as a free agent, you know if that player is associated with a, with a number. You know, for example, when you're signing Jose Reyes that he's going to want to wear number seven. You also know what numbers you have retired. Marlins had no numbers retired, no issue. You know when the Yankees acquire a player, they've got almost every number retired. If a player comes to you with that number and that number's retired, the player knows, hey, I got to choose a different number. Easy, peasy, no problem. Do you know that the clubhouse manager is the one who assigns numbers to players when they're first called up? Little known fact. It's not like a draft pick comes up to the big leagues and says, hey, I want to wear number six. Hey, I want to be number 22. We get to decide if we're going to give away, quote unquote, a retirable number, a low number, a single digit number. Not just any player can get that. When you're bringing up a taxi squad guy, meaning a bullpen arm who's got options left, you're bringing him up, you're then going to put him back down. He'll be up, he'll be down, he'll be up, he'll be down. The clubhouse guy knows before the season who was on that list of the minor league train, who has an invite to spring training, who's unlikely to make the team. All you have to do is look around at spring training, guys' numbers in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. Sort of extra guys, if they make the team, maybe they can lower their number. But the clubhouse manager will talk to the team president and the GM before giving up a well-sought-after number. But what happens when a player has an established number, comes to a team, and that number would be available, but for the fact that another player wears the number? The clubhouse manager puts that player in contact, the current player on the team, in contact with the new player, 
and it says the following, get back to me. And here's what happens in the interim. The player coming to the team, if he's rich and really into his number for whatever reason, calls on the player and says, hey, I'm coming to the team. Yeah, I'm being traded. Yeah, I'm signing. Hey, I really want it. Yeah, I, what's the going rate on your team for a number? Because there's a different going rate for every team. For many, it's a nice watch, a Rolex type nice watch, say ten dollars to $20,000. Some it's cash. Give me your meal money for the year. Sign a bunch of memorabilia for me. If it's someone like Ichiro, Ichiro comes to the Marlins, you know he's going to get 51 with the Marlins. Whoever has 51, we're taking 51 away. And Ichiro will give a little, a little shtupel to the player. Carson Wentz coming in at number 11. I wonder what Michael Pittman will ask for. But he'll get something big. He should hold out. I had a Jersey story when uh, one of the, Shane, one of the things that happened during our World Series year is we had Mr. Marlin come back to the Marlins. Uh, Mr. Marlin wore number 19 when he was with the Marlins in 97, winning a World Series. And in 2003, Mike Lowell wore number 19. So we trade for Jeff Conine coming from Baltimore. Speak to Conine, and he says, I'm a Marlin. I'm Mr. Marlin. Am I 19? We said, well, you know, Lowell's 19. And Conine was like, I get that. Well, should I call Mikey? And he knows Lowell. I mean, it wouldn't be, it would be a very short conversation. Lowell's an established player on the Marlins. Lowell said, I want 19. I'm keeping 19. And Conine said, you've got priority. You were here first. Conine wears number 18. Conine comes to me later in the year and says, hey, I really do like 19. And we started talking about retiring Conine's number because after we won the World Series in 03, Conine was with us for another couple of years. Talked about, hey, what number should you have retired? Because you won a World Series as a 19. You won it as an 18. What's your number? Conan never fought with Lowell, never got upset with Lowell, totally understood how it went, was not married to that number the way some players are married to their number. But the story is when a player comes into a clubhouse like Conan came into the clubhouse, he came in to replace Lowell who had gotten hurt. So the conversation was, hey, nice to meet you. Hey, you're going to be on the DL. Can I just wear 19 until you're done? Do you know why players can't change numbers in the middle of the season without creating a bit of a ruckus? Because of the licensing deals that the uniform manufacturers have with baseball. They've got a ton of inventory of a certain player jersey with a certain number that you can't just change your number midstream. Verboten, not allowed. Lots of stories in the clubhouse. Mark Redman was a watch guy. Talk about what kind of watch. The smart guys will give a specific watch when they want a jersey a specific kind of car, a specific amount of cash. They'll hold out even when they have no reason to hold out. It happens, Shane. Not as much anymore because so many players are making so much money so much earlier, and they actually are married to their jersey numbers in a way they never were before. More players are married to their jersey numbers now than they ever were before. I don't know. What's the big deal, right? A big league jersey is a big league jersey. I never really understood the whole number thing. I have 91 behind me because that's the number of games that I predicted we'd win, and we did win in 2003. Tim Spooniebarger wore num number 91, so he becomes my all-time favorite player. No. Okay. What's next? Good morning. Good morning to you. Love the podcast. Thank you. And your appearances on the Lebertard Show. Thank you. I have hopefully not too long-winded question. Well, we're three sentences in with nary a question, but don't worry. It's not long-winded. I love hearing from you. What is the breaking point of MLB forcing an owner to sell and what would cause the valuation of a small market team to reverse? 
I'm a diehard A's fan and certainly understand the consequences of that. But it seems like there has to be a breaking point from MLB perspective where reports come out that a team doesn't have any money to spend. I would think the value of the team would decrease if even the diehard fans don't want to watch the games on TV and that the TV deals would dry up. Oi, the naivete. I'm sorry about that, that you've asked that question. I'm thankful you asked the question, actually. It's a fascinating question, but I think we need to open up and explain how valuations work in baseball. And I think we have to talk about MLB forcing a team to sell because I want to have it all in one place on this question. Number one, no league will force an owner to sell because the owner is not spending money as long as it is within the confines of the collective bargaining agreement. If there's a salary floor in the agreement, everyone's got to spend to that floor. If you have to use your revenue sharing proceeds in baseball on your major league product, which you do, and baseball and the union are in a fight because they believe that the Marlins payroll and the Pirates payroll and the Rays payroll is too low, and then you're asked to raise your payroll, you do. You take one for the team. You cut a deal with the union. Am I getting too personal? Am I reminding people of a story that happened with the Marlins when we were forced to sign Josh Johnson and raise our payroll because we said that we will take the heat because we're happy to do it when the union complained that a bunch of teams had a payroll too low and that they were getting too much in revenue sharing? Nothing about selling the team in that story, is there? No. That's about following the rules of collective bargaining. And even when you are following the rules, taking one for the team. What does force an owner to sell? Racism, sexism. criminal activity, conviction of criminal activity. Nowhere in there is money, right? You didn't hear any of that. No discussion on having a certain payroll, none of that. No thought of what happens when you alienate your whole fan base or when you're hated or when people are buying airplanes and buying those ads that go behind the airplane, sell our team now. People did that in New York, and when, when the Wilpons sold, they actually thought that they had something to do with it. Nope, nothing. There is no owner who's ever sold because of pressure from fans. Not one time, not ever. There is no owner has sold before he's wanted to unless he was forced to, and they only force a Donald Sterling, a Marge shot. Those are the people who get forced, the racists. But then you actually ask in your question an interesting question about TV deals drying up when people aren't watching games. I want to reiterate that TV deals are based on the size of your market and the amount of subscription dollars that are used by your cable company that are received by your cable company for people who buy the sports tier. That money is then used to buy live programming from a sports network like Fox Sports Florida. Fox Sports, <coughs> excuse me. Wow, that was an actual cough on the show. I couldn't get to the button fast enough. Hold on one more time. Ready? That was funny. That doesn't happen very often. A network will buy live sports from a team. They don't care what the record is. They don't care how many fans are in the stands. They don't care what the ratings are even though media cares about ratings, media cares about attendance. The network that buys this live programming, the right to show live programming from a team, needs to have hours of that live programming in order to give to the cable company or to the other distributor 
in order to get paid by that distributor for that channel. Do you see how it works economically? Fox Sports Florida says to the Marlins, I want your games. Give me 150 of them. Give me pre and post game. That's four hours a day of coverage during the summer when no one's watching, no one's doing anything. There's nothing live on, nothing. Bupkis, I'm Fox Sports Florida. Calling the cable company. Hello, I will give you Fox Sports Florida for $100 million a year or $6 a sub. You've got 6 million subs. I'm making up the numbers. The carrier distributor says to the channel, we'll take your live programming. We'll take your channel and we'll give you the money. The network says we'll take that money, Fox Sports Florida. We'll give some of it in rights fees to the Marlins and we'll keep the rest of it and we'll be rich. So the money that you pay as a fan to be able to watch your team, even when you don't, goes to team owners and to the networks that run the games. Now, do you think that if you all decided at once, every fan of the A's, I'm never watching another game, what impact will that have? Zero. You want to have input? Input. Hello, David. Welcome to the mailbag episode of Nothing Personal. If you want to have impact, here's how you do it. You call up your cable company and you say, I will no longer pay for Fox Sports Florida. I don't need the channel. I don't want the channel. Get rid of it. Oh, wait a minute. It's in a bundle. That's how I get other networks too. Oy, that's terrible. I like the other networks, but I want to show the Marlins that I don't like them. Oh, I got to get rid of every channel. Ugh. I may just cut my cord and maybe do something a la carte. A la carte is the worst nightmare for MLB and MLB owners. A nightmare. That would mean the Marlins would only get TV money according to people who actually want to watch the Marlins play. Not all the subs in the Florida DMA. Not the fact that Florida, South Florida has the 16th greatest, highest DMA in the country. No. How many people are downloading and now watching Marlins games? Oh my God, you're going to judge me on that? <gasps> Rut row. We can't do that. That was a good question. I like that. Oh, by the way, what causes the valuation of a small market team to reverse? That was part of your question. Action of the owner? No. Winning a World Series? No. W losing 100 games? No. What causes valuations to decrease is when revenue decreases and there is a dearth of rich people who want their ego stroked. Number six. I have a management question for you. As president of the Marlins, there was a lot of pressure to succeed, not just from ownership, but probably from yourself too. How did you avoid stressing out the people who reported to you? Thank you for asking. There's so much talk right now about what it is to be a team president, what it is to be a leader, what it is to run a company, a large company with lots of employees. There's a lot of talk about how employees are not treated well. There's a lot of stress in the workplace, a lot of unhappiness in the workplace. You asked me how I would avoid stressing out the people who reported to you. That by definition means that I wanted to avoid stressing out the people who reported to me. Here's how I ran the team. I got to know every one of my direct reports really well. You can't have a thousand direct reports. If you've got 30 direct reports, that's too many. You can't possibly manage correctly that many people. You need to create layers. And I know that creates red tape. I get it. But I probably had, I haven't counted, 
eight or nine or 10 people report directly to me in my 18 years at one time. CFO, head of sales, head of marketing, head of baseball, head of communications, in any case. I would get to know those people, not by doing a Rorschach blot test, not by doing a personality test, not by seeing where they are in terms of their, their life, their situation, their age, their color, their height, their weight. I didn't care about any of that. What I cared was, what kind of person do I have in front of me? Do I have a person who thrives under pressure? Do I have a person who likes to work alone? Do I have a person who can do 10 things at once, but only eight of them right? And I've got to figure out which two are the ones he can't do right while I give him 10 things to do. Do I have a person that can do 10 things at once and get all 10 of them right, but wants the next 10 immediately before the first 10 are finished? Do I have someone who needs me to call every single day or go visit every day in his or her or their office? Do I have a person reporting to me that wants to be evaluated not just once a year, but every six months, maybe every three months, maybe every month, maybe after every project? I would keep copious track in my noggin about the different personalities of people I managed. Some people loved the stress. They literally felt as though when they were under pressure, and by the way, this is how I am, the best performances of my career have come when I had no other choice but to succeed. Where failure is an expression we use way too often. Failure is not an option. Of course it's an option. I don't even get that. Who would say that? I mean, I get that we don't want to fail, but every time you do something, not just is failure an option, failure is like a likely result if you're doing something extraordinary or trying to dare to be different or trying to grow your company, trying to expand, trying to buy your competitor, trying to get through the day. Failure is absolutely an option. Failure is not an option. I never like saying that. I like saying failure will not be tolerated. I like saying heads will roll if failure happens and it's not my fault because I always was clear when something was my fault. There were serious failures that would happen in our company and it was my fault. But when it's not my fault, I'm not going to take the blame. So there were some people with whom I would have reporting to me and they liked stress. So what I did is I would stress them out. Other people were paralyzed by it. Paralyzed. So I would make things really calm. I'd show a Jim Ross painting video. I'd play some nice Kenny G music in the office. Other people I would play head-banging rock and roll. So your question about management and the pressure, you don't necessarily, as a matter of course, try to avoid stressing out the people who report to you. What you do have to do is make sure you're not stressing out the people who can't handle stress. Why do I say that? Why do you want to avoid stressing out people who can't handle stress? Because at the end of the day, what do you want from the people who report to you? Don't you just want one thing? You want productivity. And if they're not being productive because they're stressed, you're the one who suffers because they're not being productive. So your job is to know people. That's what being a president is, by the way. That's what being a manager is. That's what being a leader is. You've got to be a people person. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.
Can you point me to a recent podcast and date when you talked about selling the Marlins and the financial ramifications for my Miami and Dade County? My lawyer wife was interested in the story and I want her to hear it in your words. Well, I hope you're listening because here come my words. I think we've talked about nothing personal before, but I can't tell you the date and I sure as heck can't ask Coca. And I sure as heck don't know why I just said heck. But I'm gonna tell you the story of the financial ramifications for Miami and Dade County because there's a lot of misunderstanding. By the way, did Billy Corbin ask this question? Feels like he may have. I don't know that his wife is a lawyer. I don't know that Billy's a lawyer, he's a filmmaker. The financial ramifications for Miami and Dade County for the deal when it came to selling the Marlins is a deal that was part of a relocation agreement that we executed upon getting financing for the stadium. We made a deal to get the stadium about 70% financed by the public with Jeffrey Laurie doing 30% privately, which was a competitive good deal at the time. It was a very controversial subject in Miami, very misunderstood. And the biggest concern that the people had who we were negotiating against was that Jeffrey was gonna get a ballpark built get a deal approved, and then immediately sell the team, capture the profit that would come from a new stadium and be gone. And maybe the next owner would be worse than Jeffrey, better than Jeffrey, the same as Jeffrey. Maybe the next owner would want to move the team, keep the team, build the team, tear down the team. Sometimes the devil you know is better than the devil you don't, but Jeffrey Lurie is no devil. The only devil that I'm a part of is the devil being in the details. The details of that agreement stated that if Jeffrey Loria sold the team within one year of the agreements, he would give 90% of the profit to the community. 90%. And by the way, it didn't say community. It said 90% to the county of Miami-Dade and the city of Miami. And what they do with it is totally up to them. If he sells it within two years, we'll give you 80%. And on and on and on until year six through nine, we'll give you 5%. Lo and behold, a couple months before the end of the ninth year, Jeffrey Laurie sold the team to Derek Jeter. And then the calculation started for what 5% of the profit would be. When you sell a team for 1.2 billion and buy a team for 100 million, that's a $1.1 billion profit, right? Wrong. Let me ask you about your house. You buy your house for $200,000. You sold it for $220,000. Do you have a $20,000 profit? Tell me, do you, do you, do you? Did your laundry room ever break? Did you ever have a roof leak? Did you ever have to put a dollar into your house? I'm just asking, did you keep track of that? Every dollar you put into an asset that you own increases the base value of that asset by that same dollar, plus the cost of not having that dollar to invest somewhere else. It's called opportunity cost. Yes, Jeffrey Loria bought a team for $158.5 million, but that doesn't take into account the amount of money he poured into the team year after year with the losses. It doesn't account to any sort of other capital improvements or other things that he did any sort of money spent on payroll or players or staff or community. Having a new ballpark doesn't take into account the natural increase for a team as the years pass, nas, nat, that, 
natural asset appreciation. None of that. So there was a formula put into the agreement whereby an amount of money would be chosen all from a formula, not 1.2 billion to 158 million. The base value of the team would go up every year. And then there'd be a deduction from the 1.2 billion for taxes and various other things, fees, expenses. And then eventually you'd get to a number that is not profit according to Jeffrey Loria, not profit according to Miami-Dade County, profit according to the document. Profit according to the agreement. Profit with a capital P in the agreement, which means it's a defined term. what happens. Then there can be disagreements, there can be arbitration, there can be settlements, there can be anything. But the reality is that when you have a situation where you have to negotiate terms of a deal, a very complicated deal, the devil is in the details. Okay, Coca, what's next? I don't know where we are on the mailbag sheet. How about number seven? Okay, for a nice transition to all the COVID and death we've been talking about, Bomani Jones on Highly Questionable said that Hoosiers was the most overrated sports movie. Do you agree? I know you like lists, especially movies. So what would be your top five most overrated sports movies? I actually made a list for you. I appreciate that you asked that question. I really do. Okay, here it is. Ready? Then this is really hard to say because these are not bad movies. So let me just clarify. When I say overrated, what I'm referring to is not the fact that I don't like the movie or do like the movie. I'm referring to the fact that people generally genuflect in the direction of that movie on lists of sports movies. And I like it fine, but I don't view it as greatness in a bottle. Number five, Tin Cup. I like Ray Russo. I like Kevin Costner. It's fine. It's overrated. Number four, I like Denzel Washington. People go gaga for Remember the Titans. It's a great movie. Great movie. Not one of the best sports movies of all time. That's number four. Number three, all right, David P. Sampson is Twitter. You can do it. You can at me, only if you follow me first. Bull Durham. The reason I have Bull Durham is the number three most overrated sports movie is that I love Bull Durham. It's got some great quotes. We used it in our in-game entertainment for a decade. Kevin Costner going to talk to Tim Robbins from Shawshank Redemption on the mound. It's great. I laughed. It's not the best baseball movie by any stretch. That's why it's the number three most overrated sports movie. Number two. Sorry, Billy Bean. You don't look like Brad Pitt. Sorry, Jonah Hill. Sorry, Paul DePodesta. Moneyball. That movie was crap. It's not true. It's not accurate. Where's Miguel Tejada in that movie? Where is Mulder Hudson and Zito in that rotation? They had the Cy Young winner and the MVP. No, it was the sign of Jeremy Giambi that made Brad Pitt so famous. Plain Billy Bean. 
Moneyball. It's overrated. If you had it as a drama, as a fiction movie, it'd be off the list. But you all have it as a sports movie, that it's true. I get asked that like in my top five most commonly asked questions after Survivor and this, that, and the other thing. Tell me about Moneyball. All right, I told you. And the most overrated movie, I still cried when I saw it. I love Sean Astin. I really do. It's a hell of a story. I'm not a Notre Dame guy. I'm a Wisconsin guy. So by definition, am I blanking, Coca? Are you, are you still on the show, Coca? Hello? Is Rudy the Notre Dame guy? I think he is. I can't believe what I'm thinking about. Anyway, Sean Astin plays Rudy. He's the player, yes, for Notre Dame who gets to, gets to play in a game and everyone cries. And it's such a great feeling when he takes the field. And, ah! I did it with Adam Greenberg, one at bat. I get it. I get the feeling. Why is it the most overrated film sports movie of all time is because you all like Moneyball have it as like this Academy Award winning masterpiece of theater. It's not that. Those are my five. Rudy, Moneyball, Bull Durham, Remember the Titans, Tin Cup. All right, I'll take the abuse. <sighs> okay. What else can we talk about, Coco? There's so many questions and so little time. I don't want to do that since I think we already talked about that. I think we should go to that question. Don't you? Hey, David. Isn't that funny to start a question like that? Hey, David. I love listening to Nothing Personal. You've done an awesome job at explaining the GameStop Wall Street fiasco so that the common person can understand it. Here's a question for So You Want to Talk to Samson or a mailbag episode. How about that? Can you explain what happens to the actual companies when all this money gets dumped into their stocks? Is it their money or do they then lose the money when the stock drops? Thanks. Thank you for asking that question. I do want to explain a little bit more about this. Because what's funny is we've got so many people now in the stock market. So many people are trying to find ways to get rich fast without working hard. They're now looking at digital collectibles. You can own a, a, a virtual piece of memorabilia. Well, I can't look at that in my office, can I? Everyone's trying to invest a dollar and get a million. Everyone's trying to win the lottery. GameStop. Anyone get rich off GameStop? Anyone? Bueller? Walker? Anybody? Mikey? Ryan? Please, anybody? All right, so here's what happens. Let's pretend that you own a company that has 10 shares of stock. And let's pretend in your bank account, you have $100. The 10 shares of stock are trading at $10. There's no other assets in the company. All you have is the bank account that has $100. Someone finds out about that company that has $100 in the bank, and that's it. They know there's only 10 shares in the entire company and they say, huh, those shares are definitely worth $10 because each share, if the company is finished, we take the $100 and we distribute it to the shareholders. 10 of you, you each get $10. That's what your shares price is worth. All of a sudden, someone wakes up and says, let's do something funky to this company. I think this company is going to go down in value. Let's short it, baby. Let's short it. That company's not worth $10. Hmm. What happened? Is there still $10 in the bank? I think there are, right? The stock goes down to $5. There's still only 10 shares outstanding. Does that mean that the stock is trading at five? Therefore, they go into the bank account and they take $50 out of the bank account and give it to the shareholders and say, here's the $5 per share. Take it. It went down. We want to pay you back. 
No, there's still $100 in the bank account. The shares of stock that are now worth $5 should really be worth $10 because the cash value of the company is $10. But for whatever reason, somebody who doesn't know what they're talking about thought there wasn't that amount of money in the account. So they priced the stock down to $5. That doesn't change what's in the bank account. Second example, $100 in the bank account, the stock's at 10. All of a sudden the stock goes to 20. I think something good's gonna happen to this company. I have a really good feeling that something good's gonna happen to this company. They haven't done a thing. They still have $100 in the bank account. The shares are trading at 20. Does that mean the 10 shareholders whose shares are now trading at 20, does that mean that an extra $100 was put into the bank account out of nowhere? Surprise, you have an extra $100. Hmm. Let me think if I've ever seen that happen. It's about as likely as taking the $50 out of the bank account when the stock goes to five. Negative. Stock goes up and down according to trades, according to free market, according to speculators, according to what people think the value of an asset could be when you can't say it's just money in the bank account. There's so many different reasons why stocks go up and down, mostly manipulation, mostly people in the know where you are not, mostly you trying to play catch up where you can't. When the stock prices goes up, it doesn't mean they have more cash. Now, they have a greater market cap because if your stock's at 20 and you have 10 shares of stock outstanding, that means your company, quote unquote, has a market cap of $200. You can go to a bank and say, hey, we've got a market cap of $200. We have $100 in the bank. We'd like to borrow another $50. We're going to use that $50 to buy an asset. And then we think our stock's going to go well above 20. Oh my God, our stock just went down to five. Oh God, our, our loan's going to get called and we have no money. We don't even have an asset. That's called bankruptcy. I do appreciate that question. It's not their money. You don't lose money when the stock drops. You don't gain money when the stock goes up. Hopefully, I just gave you a few minutes where you understand what happens when stock prices go up and when stock prices go down. All right. David P. Sampson. You mentioned recently that you pause a movie, if you don't like the movie, and you go through the same 10 apps to get your news. What are those apps? Well, thank you for asking. Remember when I review movies on Nothing Personal, what I actually say is, how many times have I checked my phone? How many times have I checked the time, the time left in the movie? And there's some movies like Nomadland where it's a zero check movie, where I literally go through the entire movie without doing anything. But your question is, what do I do during a movie when my phone is on? Number one, Twitter. Number two, CBS. It's all in order right here, alphabetical, might I add. It's alphabetical, can you see that? Alphabetical. ESPN. Instagram, New York Post, New York Times, Yahoo Sports, MLB trade rumors. I like the weather, so storm radar, and then TikTok because the rabbit hole of TikTok, that's a good one. I like to see if there's any things on Amazon I should be buying or if there's any mistakes in movies I should be noticing or if there's anyone doing something live where they're just people I want to see do something live or if somehow they can th hit a golf ball into a toilet paper holder from 30 feet away. So I do look at 10 apps every single time I look at my phone. The problem is when I pause the movie and I start going through my list of one to 10, anytime I hit the rabbit hole, I gotta get through all 10 because I wanna make sure if I'm stopped, I might as well look at all of them. So I do. And then I end up having to start the movie like 20 minutes later. It's totally annoying. I'd much rather be able to watch a movie and get all the way through a movie and not do the 10 app check. 
Thanks for asking that question. I appreciate that you all ask these questions. There's so many more I don't get a chance to go to. We do mailbags at the end of every month. We'll do one at the end of March, I promise. Ooh, is that breaking news, Koga? We will do one at the end of March. This has been the mailbag bonus episode on Nothing Personal. And remember, it's just business. This is Nothing Personal. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.